Passages, I'm Rachel Powell, and this is Passages Voice. Hello friends and welcome. Thank you for joining us for this episode where we'll be discussing the upcoming elections of Israel. My name is Matana DeWitt and I am the program coordinator for media and communications here at Passages. And joining me today is actually the host of this podcast, Josiah McGee. Josiah, thanks for joining us today. Thank you. It's good to be here and welcome to Passages. How's your first couple of weeks been? You settling in well? Yeah, I'm settling in for sure. Um, I think this is the beginning of my fourth week, actually, so getting close to a month, and I am loving it. It's a dream job. So Glad to hear it. Definitely. So I know that our audience is familiar with you because you're usually the host of this podcast, but can you tell us a little bit about yourself before we get started? Sure. Well, my name, like she said, is Josiah McGee. I'm the Associate Director of Alumni Education. I basically help to manage most of our educational content and programs for Passages. It takes a variety of forms, you know, the online courses, the podcasts, all that fun stuff. So I really love the chance to get away from my computer sometimes and just do these podcasts. It's, it's a really fun time. I was actually a student first with Passages back in June of 2016, and then I was a fellow a few times. I was actually your fellow, Matana. <laughs> Indeed. And then, yeah, I just kept coming around back to Passages, and I've been with them for about a year now. I've really enjoyed it. So for the purposes of this podcast, it's probably helpful also to note that I did my degree at Union University in International Relations with a minor in economics and focused pretty extensively on the Middle East, both in school and some other programs with the Philos Project and whatnot. So I've had a, a fair amount of experience researching the politics of the Middle East, and I'm really looking forward to talking more about the elections in Israel coming up. Awesome. Thank you so much for being here with us. It's great to have someone with your, exper- with your expertise to kind of help us unpack this topic. Um, so to give a little bit of context for this episode, I want to ask our listeners a question. Have Israeli politics ever felt confusing to you? <laughs> because they for sure have to me. I've been to Israel um, five times now, and every time I go, I feel like I have more questions than I had before I came. Um, so I know that this topic can be pretty daunting. So. Um, with that in mind, and considering the unusual circumstances of the last two elections, and of specifically of this coming of this upcoming election, um, which we'll discuss in more detail later, um, they're definitely confusing topics. And our hope is that our listeners will walk away with um, I don't know, just feeling equipped to learn more and have conversations about these topics without feeling overwhelmed. Um, and when the election happens soon to where we can all know what to look for and how to interpret what's happening and how to talk about it with others. Um, So with giving that context and without any further ado, let's just get right into it. So Josiah, can you give us a little introduction to Israeli politics um, and maybe describe some of the differences between the U.S. electoral system and the Israeli electoral system? Sure. Well, the U.S. electoral system is fairly straightforward. We're all, I think, fairly familiar with that. It's a congressional system. You have three branches of government, the executive, legislative, which is the Congress, and then the judicial branch or the court system. It's a direct representation system, which means that people are elected to represent a specific district. So every district will have its own election with specific representatives that they're electing, and everyone will also come together to vote for nationwide offices like the president or something like that. So it's a, 
a pretty specific system in terms of who you're actually voting for and individuals voting for different people depending on where you live in the country. Israel is a little bit different. It's a parliamentary system. The closest comparison that we would probably be familiar with is the United Kingdom, for example. And what it means is that they have a, a branch of government or a system in which branches of government are a little more emerged. Or the, the lines are blurred a little bit. So, for example, the executive and the legislative branch are actually shared by the same politicians. The prime minister is the leader of the biggest party, generally speaking, in the parliamentary body, the Knesset, but he is also the head of the executive branch of government. So there's there's a little bit of a, a complication there in terms of kind of merging or, or blurring the lines between the executive and le legislative branches. They also have what's known as a proportional system of government or election, which means that rather than voting within a specific district for a specific set of candidates, everyone is going to vote, everyone in the country is going to vote for the same party. So basically you're, you're voting for a party, not for a candidate, and everyone is going to be represented by the same uh, politicians. What happens then is that a party is going to, to try to get the biggest percentage of the national vote possible, and then they will be awarded seats in the Knesset or the, the, the legislative body per the percentage of the vote that they receive, or according to the percentage of the vote that they receive. And you're going to basically then use that to form a, a coalition, which allows you to form the executive branch of government. So the largest party in the Knesset is given the opportunity to form a coalition, or a majority group within the Knesset. Usually one party is not big enough to form a majority in the Knesset, so they have to kind of bring a few allies along with them, some other smaller parties with them to form a group which does have a majority, and then the, the leader of that coalition usually becomes the prime minister and then forms the government or the executive branch of government. So the cabinet, like they call it, will usually include ministers of defense, minister of the interior, ministers of health, economic ministers, and, and all those fun jobs. Awesome. So kind of thinking about the differences between the U.S. Uh, form and the Israeli form. Um, what are some, I guess, benefits and disadvantages to both? Because obviously they're different, um, and there's probably not one not one way to do it right, one one or the other way to do it right. But what are some of the pros and cons that um, that you see with both forms that maybe kind of help us give some some more context for that? Sure. Well, in the in the United States, for example, one of the biggest frustrations that a lot of people have is the fact that it, it takes forever to get anything through Congress and across the president's desk. It just takes a very, very long time. By nature, because of the way that the Israeli system works, you are more likely to get things done faster, which can be both a pro and a con. Now, because you have to have a coalition in order to form a government and an executive branch of government, that means that more often than not, you're going to be forced to actually have a majority support for your ideas before the government is even established, which means it's much easier for that government to get things done fairly quickly once it is established. The United States, that's very much not the case. And so it's that is a pro in that you can get things done and the government is usually slightly more efficient at passing laws faster. It can also be a con in some regards because it's relatively easy to overturn laws if the government changes, and it can be a little bit less stable because the government moves so quickly. So 
there are pros and cons to that elements of, of how it works. There's also other pros and cons. The fact that the executive and legislative branch are merged can be both a pro and a con, depending on how you look at it. And there are obviously a wide variety of preferences in terms of people, how they like to approach elections. Some people think that it's a con. The fact that Israel does not have direct representation, so you're not voting for a candidate to rep represent you directly. But because it's a proportional system, you are more likely to find cases where smaller parties that don't necessarily have broad support can have the voice represented. So minorities are usually given more representation in the proportional system. So that, like I said, there's pros and cons, and some of it's preference-based, but those are some a few examples. Great. Thank you. Um, so kind of keeping in this uh, theme of the differences between the U.S. system and the Israeli system, just to kind of give us some, some understanding with something that we're familiar with and to be able to kind of grasp the, the different concepts within Israeli politics, um, can you tell us or just kind of talk about what are some differences between the U.S. voting issues and the Israeli voting issues, especially as it relates to current events? Well, the first thing I think it's important to, to clarify is that the national experience, or the recent history of the United States and Israel is very different. And that is reflected in the way that they vote, who they choose to vote for, and what issues they typically care about the most. So, for example, the United States really has not had a significant national security scare, the likes of which Israel experiences on a fairly, fairly consistent basis in quite some time. 9-11 would be the most recent example, and even that is, is not an outright war like Israel has fought on multiple occasions in the last few decades. So for that reason, foreign policy matters in the United States, but as a rule of thumb, voters are going to choose to vote on domestic issues instead, like health care, the economy, immigration, social issues, and stuff like that. And the, the spectrum that defines the difference between conservative and progressive is going to be largely based more so on those domestic issues than it is foreign policy. If there's anything that is still semi-kind of sort of bipartisan in U.S. politics today, it's foreign policy. Most people are willing to get behind the, the general framework of our foreign policy. But domestic issues are really where the debate lies and the difference between conservative and progressive lies. Israel, it's a little bit the opposite, actually. Domestic issues do matter, and there are parties which focus fairly specifically on those issues. But as a general rule, foreign policy, national security are a lot more important than they are in the United States because of the experience that they've had and the fact that they've faced so many threats. How the government plans to deal with those threats is a very important issue, and voters care about it a lot. And it really does, in many ways, kind of define the difference between a conservative or progressive right and left-wing voter in the Israeli population. The other issue that matters a lot, that matters some in the United States, but perhaps a little bit less than it does in Israel, or is not quite as obvious and at the front of how we vote, is the role of religion in the country, and especially religious law. So in Israel, you know, voters are going to be very much concerned with the debate between ultra-Orthodox Judaism and secular Judaism, and how much Jewish law should and should not be a part of the law of Israel. So, for example, should ultra-Orthodox men be exempt from the draft? Because right now, many ultra-Orthodox men don't have to serve in the IDF, despite the fact that the vast majority of the population does have a mandatory service in the IDF. That's a big issue. Another issue is, for example, should conservative or Orthodox Jewish law regarding the Sabbath govern the entire country? 
or just small portions of it. So you know, those are a few examples of how they, the issues that they care about are a little bit different, a little more specific both to their culture and to the recent history and experience than that of the United States. That makes sense. So in thinking about that, what are some of the key players? Who are some of the key players? Sure. Well, this the, the top three key players in the last couple of elections really do, I think, reflect some of these ongoing debates in Israeli society. There's, there's, there's three that we really should be aware of and know their names. The first is Prime Minister Netanyahu, also known as Bibi. He's Israel's longest-serving prime minister. He appears in the news a lot in the United States because he frequently meets with President Trump, has very close ties to the current administration, and often praises it for decisions that it's made regarding the Golan Heights, the embassy in Jerusalem, and whatnot. He, he leads the Likud party, which is generally considered a right-wing party, a fairly conservative party, and has become increasingly conservative over the last few years on issues like security, the West Bank, settlements, and so on and so forth. His, his coalition, because the Likud party is not big enough to have a majority, does also include a few other parties, which are also fairly conservative on security in the West Bank, if not very conservative on security in the West Bank. And can, you, can you kind of define what's uh, conservative on security in the West Bank is, just briefly, kind of? Sure. So conservative on security in the West Bank means that they're going to be more of a hard line on negotiations with the Palestinians, for example. They're going to be very pro-foreign policy that is very aware of international threats, is going to be much more concerned with the threat from Iran, for example. A strong national defense is a, is a very big concern and priority when it comes to being conservative on security. Conservative on the West Bank in many cases means that they're much more likely to support annexation of portions of the West Bank or continued building of settlements in the West Bank, which is a fairly controversial issue both in Israel and in the international community. Great, that makes sense. Please continue. Sorry to interrupt. No, no problem. So the, the other thing to note about his coalition, which is very interesting and kind of defines Bibi's role in Israeli politics is that because he needs smaller parties to kind of help him form this right-wing coalition, he has for, for a long time included many ultra-Orthodox parties which are very religiously conservative. And they tend to have a disproportionate amount of influence because he needs them in order for the coalition to have a majority. So they're very small parties most of the time. But because he needs them, they have a lot more influence than a small party would in the United States, for example. Again, because he needs them to have that majority. And it has influenced the way that he makes various decisions, policies that he supports, and promises that he has to make during the campaign cycle, which are obviously relevant. And we'll get into a couple of those as we go on. But on March 17th, something very important to note, the last thing very important to note about Prime Minister Netanyahu, is that his trial is actually going to start because he has been formally indicted on charges of bribery and fraud. For the last year, there's been kind of a, a mystery whether or not the Attorney General would actually indict him on these charges or whether he would request immunity from these charges. And it's been a critical issue in the last two elections in the last 12 months. But he eventually was indicted and decided not to seek immunity from the Knesset, which means that going into the election, he knows about two weeks after the elections, he'll actually be facing a trial on these charges, which is a very historic event in, in Israeli history and society. It's the first time it's actually happened. A, that someone has been running for election under that kind of scope. And then B, the first time that a sitting prime minister has actually been 
formally charged with crimes like this. So it has a very significant role to play in the debate around the election. Benny Gantz is the leader of the Blue and White Party. His party is really the primary challenger to Prime Minister Netanyahu's Likud party in the last two elections. It's also a relatively new party. The two elections ago was the first time that this party actually ran under that name. So it's, it's a relatively newcomer to the political scene in, in Israel. And Benny Gantz himself also is relatively new to politics in Israel. He was a former general in the IDF. The party claims to be centrist and more willing to work across divides than Netanyahu is. He, he Benny Gantz, will argue that Bibi is too divisive and has disqualified himself from governing by committing bribery, fraud, making racist statements, you know, you name it. Benny Gantz and, and Bibi are not exactly on very friendly terms right now. But Bibi argues that Gantz is too willing to work with everyone else, and that's actually dangerous. So there's this debate between the two. Is unity or hardline stances more important? Arguably, Gantz is still pretty conservative compared to the average Israeli, but that tells you just how conservative Bibi is, that they, they can't agree on whether unity or divisiveness is the, the path forward. And so it's a very interesting debate that they're having, just the two of them, about kind of the approach to Israeli politics. Bibi is especially concerned that Gantz has opened the door and has really refused to outright reject deals or coalitions made with other smaller parties that are on the left side of the Israeli political spectrum or even Arab parties. Bibi is, is very much against working with the Arab parties, and that's something that Gantz really has refused to rule out. And so it's been a key issue in the past couple of elections that they've been arguing about. Gantz will argue that you know Bibi is unnecessarily divisive and it's harming the Israeli society and the relationship with the international community as well as internal relationships. He also argued recently that you know, Bibi's actions have damaged U.S.-Israel relations by abandoning good communication with the Democratic Party and just kind of giving up on, on their relationship with the Democratic Party in the United States, focusing solely on the Republican Party, and has pledged to actually work harder to maintain bipartisan support for U.S.-Israel relationships than Prime Minister Netanyahu has. Now, obviously, Netanyahu will take offense and argue that it's not his fault that there's poor relationships with one party or the other. But it is a very interesting kind of debate that they have right now about has Bibi's personality and approach really served Israel well, or is it just fracturing society and leading to very harmful consequences? Avidor Lieberman is the last person that you really want to know the name of in the election moving forward. He's the leader of Israel Batenu. This party is a secular right-of-center party, so they're, they're more closely aligned, probably naturally, with the Likud party than the Blue and White party, but they have a, a feud going on with the Likud party right now. Because Lieberman, who's known for arguing for greater national unity and less influence for extreme parties, like the ultra-Orthodox, does not like the fact that while he probably agrees with Prime Minister Netanyahu on a lot of security issues, he is not a fan of the fact that Prime Minister Netanyahu is passing religious laws because the ultra-Orthodox parties are in Likud's coalition, or has been in Likud's coalition. So both Gantz and Bibi find it somewhat difficult to form a coalition without his support, but he's been kind of the the guy holding out on both of them for the past couple of elections. He's made it very difficult for them to form a coalition when the negotiations start. Gotcha. So that's definitely a lot of a lot of moving parts um, in terms of the issues and in terms of the key players. Um, how will those issues and then the key players who are involved in them, um, along with the special circumstances of the recent elections, 
affect this one? It's a good question. That's a, uh, I mean, there's a lot to unpack. Like you said, there's a lot of moving parts and moving pieces. So I'll try and, and break it down with just a few key takeaways that we should be thinking about. The first thing I think I'd like to, to mention is that it's important and significant. We recognize the unique nature of what Israel's going through right now and that they have had or are about to have their third election in 12 months. The reason for this is because they had an election last spring and the Prime Minister Netanyahu was given the mandate to, to try and form a coalition, to form a government. He failed to do so and the Knesset voted to dissolve itself rather than turning over the mandate or the opportunity to form a government to Benny Gantz. And then the second time around, Gantz and Bibi both had an opportunity to try and form a government and they both failed. They both had a chance to form a coalition couldn't get it done, couldn't agree with each other on a deal to make it happen, in large part because they couldn't agree on a unity government. Who is going to, who would be the head of a unity government, for example? Would it be Prime Minister Netanyahu, Prime Minister Gantz? Would they take turns being the Prime Minister? You know, they just couldn't make it happen. So because these negotiations have failed over and over again, and they kind of reached this stalemate in terms of where they're at, this is their third election in 12 months, and that is very weird and very unique in Israeli history that they would reach a point where that's necessary for them to have that many elections in a given year. So we need to recognize that you know, the, the national divides that have been created in the stalemate over these issues is having severe consequences on their ability to actually form a government. Now moving forward, a couple of things to, to note and to keep in mind. Gantz and Bibi previously did not have the support necessary to form a coalition outright. That's that's why they have failed up until this point. Now they tried forming a unity government, as I just mentioned, but because they, they failed to agree on, you know, who is the prime minister, whether they rotate, what order they rotate in, you know, they haven't been able to make it happen. The, the, the second thing, a reason why Gantz and Bibi haven't really been able to agree is because Bibi's criminal charges have been an obstacle up until this point to making a deal. Now, this upcoming election is going to be a little bit unique because there's two things different. One, Bibi has been formally charged. In the first election, almost a year ago, that wasn't actually the case. He hadn't actually been charged yet. People just assumed he was going to be charged. And so it was an issue, but people were kind of guessing and, and speculating that this was going to happen and it might be an issue. So that's the first thing that's changed. The second thing that's changed is that during the second election, Bibi was facing a much more credible threat of you know having to go to trial, but he was still requesting immunity. He was running on the platform that if he was made the prime minister, that he could reach a deal, a coalition, which would put him into power again as the prime minister and allow him to pass a law in the Knesset that would give him immunity from prosecution of these charges. So he would basically be, you know, it, not escaping the charges themselves, but escaping the fact that he would actually have to go to trial and would be allowed to, to govern and be the prime minister again without, without actually having to answer for those charges. If that makes sense. Yeah, so now it, it's very different. We're, we're in a, a third election, and this time, Bibi's facing these charges, is not requesting immunity, he's not running on the platform that he should be given immunity for these charges, but everyone is just assuming that the, two weeks after this election, he's going to have to go to trial, and that does kind of change the color and the tone of this election a little bit, the fact that there's really no escaping it. He's, he's going to have to go to trial in a matter of weeks. 
Now that has had some impacts in the ways that he kind of forms his coalitions in the past couple of elections and probably moving forward as well because he's kind of sensed a, a political danger and the fact that he may actually end up being punished for various crimes, assuming that the, the courts decide to find him guilty. He he knows that he does have to kind of protect himself and surround himself with allies. And so he's chosen to solidify his coalition by making promises to the ultra-Orthodox partners that he won't abandon them, that they're guaranteed a spot in the future coalition, and that they're going to get certain things like protections for ultra-Orthodox policies, and in many cases, a protection of plans to annex portions of the West Bank, for example. He's always been leaning in that direction, but the fact that he is explicitly stating now that there are plans to, for example, annex parts of the Jordan Valley, that's a little bit unique and probably due to the fact that he's sensing some danger around him and he needs to win over friends and build up as much support as he can, even if that means kind of being a little bit more extreme than he has in the past. The other thing to note, I think, about the election moving forward in terms of kind of, you know, where Gantz and Bibi are at, is it's important not to forget about Lieberman. So Lieberman did not want to reach a coalition agreement previously that includes Arab or progressive parties, as Gantz considered, or ultra-Orthodox parties like Bibi insisted. But it's important to, to realize, I think, that nothing has really changed. <clears throat> Excuse me, changed. Gantz is still kind of the big tent politician right now who's not ruling anything off or out of the question, not pulling anything off the table. Bibi is, is very much being himself and is you know refusing to move from where he stands and is doubling down on promises to you know his party and his coalition. So really the, the primary stalemate or one of the primary reasons for the stalemate was the fact that neither one of them could get Lieberman to join their coalition. And the reasons why Lieberman refused to do so still exist. Nothing has really changed. And so that's something to look forward to in the future after the election is after the election, they will have another round of negotiations. And the question is, is anything going to change in those negotiations? Is Lieberman going to blink? Is Gans going to blink? Is Bibi going to blink? Yeah, someone's got to blink eventually. Someone's got to give in. But the real question is, who is it going to be? Hmm. That's a good question. Um, so in thinking about those political issues that Israeli voters are concerned with, which we talked about earlier, um, what should we be looking for in this March 2nd election? Sure. Well, there's a, a couple of key issues, obviously, like we've previously mentioned. Bibi has is, is kind of continued to campaign on a platform that is centered around his foreign policy prowess, his experience in national security, his commitment to it. He's lost some support, and this is important to note because of recent events, even in the last few days, the last week, that the Gaza Strip has been kind of a thorn in the side for some time. So Israeli voters, especially those in the South, care a lot about national security. One of the things that they need in order to feel secure is some sense of stability in the Gaza Strip and a, an ability to trust that the government knows what it's doing and is going to prevent any you know, massive outbreak of violence in the Gaza Strip. Because of all the recurring rocket attacks and the protests in the Gaza Strip, in many cases, Israeli voters are worried that Bibi, although he has a lot of experience in national security, is not doing a very good job at kind of controlling the Gaza Strip and maintaining the status quo, and providing stability there. 
And so they're, they're worried about it. And, it. and it's an issue that they will probably be considering as they go to the polls moving forward. Other issues that the media has focused a lot on in Israel, and as well as the U.S. media, is you know which candidate will do the most good for national security? How are the candidates likely to approach a possible annexation of the West Bank or a continued building of settlements in the West Bank? How are they going to approach the proposed peace plan that the White House recently released? Gantz and Baby both are kind of arguing about how to deal with that. They've both at least in theory, agreed to the framework that the President Trump proposed, but they're both accusing each other of either going beyond the scope of that framework or not being fully committed to the framework, depending on which side of the debate you're on. And so those, those are issues that voters are also paying close attention to, given kind of the recent events in the context of the U.S.-Israel relationship. Other issues that will continue to be important are whether the ultra-Orthodox parties or the left-of-center parties are the final piece in the winning coalition. It's, it's a very critical issue to be aware of, because up until this point, Bibi has made his political career off of you know, including ultra-Orthodox parties in his coalition, but for the past couple of elections, they haven't been enough to put him over the top and to give him a government or the prime minister uh, position. So it's a, an important question, Will they finally be enough to get them there, or are the left-of-center parties, the small parties on the left, going to be kind of the, the final piece in the winning coalition? Because right now, you know, Lieberman, that, that one party, Yisrael Batanu, in the middle, it hasn't really been able to make it happen either, to be the final piece. So that it may be that it's the left-of-center parties, like Arab parties or labor parties, that managed to actually finally kind of push someone over the top and forming a coalition. Bibi hasn't indicated a willingness to abandon his partners, which means that large-scale changes to the role of orthodox members of society are, are not likely if he becomes the prime minister. But if he does not become the prime minister and a coalition, including left-of-center parties or progressive parties, is formed, you're probably going to see some changes in the ways that ultra-orthodox members are forced to integrate into society and the privileges that they're given, the economic support they're given as well which could be fairly disruptive uh, after this upcoming election and it could actually create further divides in Israeli society depending on how it's handled. The last thing that I think is important to note is the fact that in the, the second in this so far three-phase <laughs> uh, saga of elections, in the second election in the fall, Arab turnout skyrocketed. It was very high, which was rather surprising because Arab voters usually don't actually turn out to vote very often in Israeli elections, or not in extremely large numbers at least. But they did in the last election. They had a very good chance at gaining real influence as minority leaders or members of the coalition, perhaps even last time. Whether they repeat those results will be will be very key. And it's very important to note, I think right now, that Israeli media is saying that polls currently suggest Bibi will win one more seat than Gantz, which will probably give him the right to open the negotiations for the building of a coalition and a government. Gantz is going to be right behind him. The lead is very, very slim. And then the third largest party right now in the polls is the Arab joint list. So they've they've made up significant ground and have positioned themselves very well to have more influence in the outcome of this election and how the next government is built and how the next minority group in the Knesset is built and in general, how these many of the issues impacting them 
are handled in Israeli society than in the past. It's it's remarkable that they have this much influence and that they're turning out to vote in such big numbers. And it it will be very very interesting and important to watch how many Arab voters vote in this next election because if they if they vote in large numbers, then you may see them actually gain a lot of influence. Great, great, so good to know. Um, where can our listeners go to learn more and to stay updated about this election? Sure. I recommend reading a combination of Times of Israel, Haaretz, and Jerusalem Post. I say combination because reading multiple sources is very key so that you get every perspective. If you're reading only one, then you're not really going to understand the big picture. You're going to get a very biased impression of the Israeli culture, society, and the political issues that they face. So it's important to read you know, as many as you can in a combination of them. The Israel Policy Forum also has some excellent online resources that kind of explain the system of government and some of the current events and issues surrounding the election as well. Awesome. Um, and these resources that Josiah mentioned will actually be available in the show notes for this episode. You can find that at our blog, betpassagesisrael.org. Thank you so much, Josiah, and thank you for our listeners. Thank you to our listeners for joining us today. To learn more about how to get involved, visit passagesisrael.org backslash pulse. From Passages, I'm Rachel Powell. Thank you for listening.